Welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. My name is Eric Sufert. Today, my guest is Stephen Ellis, who is better known in some circles as Snoopy. Stephen is a former professional gamer and is currently the founder and CEO of Pipeline.gg, which is an education platform for aspiring game streamers. As a pro gamer, and then as an employee at Facebook working on its game streaming product, Steven saw the challenges that streamers faced in building and monetizing audiences, and he started Pipeline.gg as a means of helping anyone to become a game streamer. I had dinner with Steven recently and was impressed by his background, and I invited him onto the podcast to discuss the economics of game streaming, how cooperation between game streamers and game developers can be improved, and how the landscape of game streaming platforms is changing. Please enjoy this conversation with Steven Ellis. Steven, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, man. It's a it's a wild time, but I can't really complain. You know, things are going well on the business, personal side. So feeling good. Got in the best shape of my life throughout this last six months. So feeling pretty good about it. I'm happy for you. I'm uh, not in the best shape of my life, but I just started a kind of more intensive workout regimen. My wife got me uh, a, like a number of sessions with a personal trainer. And so I'm, I'm speaking to you today in like just immense pain. <laughs> <laughs> was that your first session? Yeah, I did. Well, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've worked out, you know, kind of regularly since I've been in college, but this is like the longest stretch I've gone without going to the gym, right? Since basically March. And so my wife got me like a, like a, like a three month, um, multi-session kind of package with a personal trainer. And it was just, it was unreal. Like I, I honestly, like at the end of it, I just did the first one on, on Tuesday. I thought I was going to throw up. It's on, it's a game changer. That accountability um, and being told to show up and do it. It's, yeah. That was actually why I got in the best shape in the last six months. Yeah. My um, buddy ended up staying with us because he just moved from the UK to the US. So he yeah. stayed with us and he's big into fitness and he essentially became my personal trainer. Uh, we got oh, wow. quarantined together uh, and he just kicked my ass like three, four days a yeah. week. Yeah, I mean, this guy was, he was, I mean, I just never done that kind of like uh, high intensity type type of training. Um, usually I always just lifted weights, right? Which is like, you know, four or five sets of five. And so, you know, you take a long break and you check your email in between. And this guy was like, nope, you got a minute. And then you're sprinting again. Uh, <laughs> Are you doing uh, anyway. like a 30 minute, a 30 minute blast session or like an hour? Hour. Uh, so I'm only doing 30 minutes, like high intensity, 30 minutes. And that's enough for me. Well, so this guy was like, Given your goals, you have to do an hour every time. Like if you want to, if you want to accomplish what you want to accomplish in three months, you got to do an hour. So I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. I look forward to seeing you in three months. Yeah, let's see, man. Um, well, uh, workouts aside, I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be uh, chatting with you today. Um, so usually in the podcasts, I will, I will do a longer intro myself in the, in the, in the sort of monologue section and then ask the, um, ask the guests to do a shorter Kind of abbreviated intro but i thought in this case i'd ask you to do the longer introduction because i just think your story is really really fascinating and and honestly inspiring um so could you just kind of introduce yourself introduce yourself to the to the audience and uh tell us about your history and your journey and, and how you got to be stephen ellis yeah so i think one thing is it's a lot of people know me by the name snoopy which is an alias i go by online um because i was a former pro um so backtracking a little bit i grew up as a small town kid in scotland and was obsessed with video games, super obsessed with video games. I got my first graphics card when I was six years old, wanting to, to build my first PC. 
by the age of 11 and 12, I was making thousands of dollars um, off video games, uh, doing all sorts of crazy things. Uh, I was had so much time in my hands. So I was like leveling up accounts um, for and then selling them to older folks that had way more disposable income. Um, what, so what, like a, what kind of games were you, were, you pl- were you leveling up? A lot of Korean MMOs. So games okay. like Aeon was a game that I, that I uh, grinded out, World of Warcraft um, was grinding at that. I didn't actually get into Lineage, um, which is surprising. It's one of the biggest you know, Korean MMOs, yeah. but I never got into it. Uh, so Aeon and then um, EVE Online. I was okay. doing a lot of accounts on that and I was just grinding out hours. So I would, and then I got a little more sophisticated and started to understand the value of accounts because before I didn't really get it. And then I started buying and selling accounts um, and like trading up. And this was, you know, I was a 13 year old kid in Scotland um, doing this online. And then I, I got into private WoW servers for a while um, and sell, like, it's crazy the economies in these private WoW servers where people would be buying custom gear. So like custom, you know, fuel outfits in, in their, in these private wealth servers and you could sell them for $300 a pop or even up to a thousand dollars for a fuel set, um, in these private wealth servers. So there's no real implications on the public servers. This was purely right. on vanilla wild private servers. Um, fast forward a little bit. I, um, went to university for computer science in, in Scotland and was getting very good at one video game in particular, and that was League of Legends. And ironically, I actually hated the game when I first started playing it. Um, I had never played a MOBA before and started on this game. And then I was like, I don't like this. This is not fun. So I gave it up. And then four or five months later, my buddies hit me up saying, hey, we're playing League of Legends. And I was like, I'm not that interested. But I tried it out with them, and it just became a lot more fun um, because playing with a group's a 5v5 game was just way more fun. Um, about four or five months after that, I got so good at the game that I could no longer play my buddies because they weren't that good. And I became one of the yeah. best players in Europe uh, at League of Legends and started playing online a bunch of different tournaments um, for small prize pools, like talking like a hundred couple, like a couple hundred bucks a month at that point. And then I made the decision that um, it was actually a cat. My, my dad had passed when I was 19 and I just, this, this massive catalyst in my life was like, I'm not going to do what I'm not passionate about. And I decided I'm going to drop out of university and I'm going to move to South Korea and I'm going to play video games for a living. And my mom's like, what? she had no idea about this world, never understood it. She's like, my kid is dropping out of school and moving to South Korea. He's never been outside of Europe and he's going to South Korea. And I was just had so much conviction uh, in what I was going to do and that I want to do what I was passionate about. So I started competing. Uh, professionally in League of Legends for uh, a total of four and a half years that I competed on stages around the world. So in China, over 40 countries worldwide, um, competing in front of thousands or tens of thousands of people in person, but then also the audience was obviously millions online. And what was particularly cool about that is I was there at the very beginning of Riot Games and League of Legends, the company. So this is back in 2010, 2011. And I got to kind of grow up with Riot Games as a company which was really special because I was a very fast-growing company. And I got to be there at the forefront of one of their biggest initiatives, which is eSports. Got very close to the Riot team, and Twitch was growing really quickly at that time as well. So it was creating a bunch of content online on platforms like Twitch. And that was just an absolutely wild ride. Like, it's hard to describe what it's like when you're a small-town kid in Scotland. Um, And my dream at that point was, like, I'm going to open a PC store locally 
and I want to be known as the guy in the, the city is like the PC guy. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to run the local store and everyone's going to know that I'm the best um, for any technical needs they have around their computer. And uh, that was my kind of aspirations. And then suddenly I was just thrust into this global spotlight uh, in front of millions of people and I had to, to grow up very quickly and, um, and learn a lot um, about so many different things. And it was absolutely incredible because it was a 5v5 game. I also had four other teammates and we were essentially a band of brothers and we were all you know, teenagers uh, or in our early twenties. And we were just all exploring the world. the world or the world? Yeah, my teammates, I had, you know, some from Germany, some from the Netherlands, some from uh, Denmark. And we just were growing up together. We were all small town kids in our own right. And we were just learning and growing up by traveling the world uh, and, and playing in these tournaments for, you know, sometimes hundreds of dollars, sometimes uh, millions of dollars. Wow. And... You, you, kind of just total aside, but you know, I I knew we were doing. You know, we had scheduled this like a couple weeks ago. This call, and I was watching uh, the Queen's Gambit, and it kind of reminded me of your. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it was you know it's number one show. I on have. Netflix. It's incredible. I told anyone listening, go check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, and it just reminded me of your story though, because I you know we we met in person a couple months ago. You know, you were in Austin, and you were just kind kind of walking me through your background. And I just, I just was watching this show and like, this is like Steven, he's, you know, what's chess, right? Or, you know what I mean? Like, oh, chess looks like an interesting game. I should play or, you know, whatever. And then, hey, walking into the, that initial tournament, what in the, in the, in the college and, and being like, what do you mean? What's a rank or, you know, and just, and then all of a sudden. I mean, I, I literally had my CRT and my, my, my terror, um, you know, on my back, getting a train yeah. from Scotland down to England to play in the local tournament. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's that documentary and other ones like it, I have such a uh, empathy for the, the character um, because mm -hmm. it very, it is extremely relatable. Um, it's the yeah. passion, the, the, it's not even just passion, it's obsession that you have to have when you're competing. I mean, League of Legends had a hundred million players monthly um, and we had to be in the top hundred right. of that um, to be competing at the level we are. Yeah. And to, can you can you kind of walk us through that kind of so you did the pro programmers pro gamer stage and then can you kind of walk us through the kind of net because you've had multiple you know now entrepreneur stage and there was like a middle stage can you walk us through like the middle stage the post pro gamer stage yeah so a big thing for me um even when i was competing i was really interested in how the industry worked um you know i was i was negotiating my own contracts and really trying to understand how the, the economics of the industry were made up and following my playing career, I really wanted to get in behind the scenes. So less on the talent side, but more shaping the industry itself. Uh, and that led me, I worked in a startup for about a year before Facebook approached me and said, hey, we would love you to come and run our esports division at Facebook. And quite frankly, I had so much autonomy for like six years of my life. I was like, I don't really want to join a company like Facebook. They're so big. Um, but I, I decided to join. And when I got there, I was really shocked at how little knowledge there was about gaming um, at the company. And what's ironic is that it was the first billion dollars that Facebook ever made was from video games before ads mm -hmm. was even, you know, their business unit. Yeah. And I, I realized that there was just a lack of knowledge. They really neglected games for about a decade um, since the, the kind of Zynga, Farmville, IP, like those days. And 
I came in, I was like a team of three people. It was doing like a couple of billion dollars in revenue still, the business at this point. And I, I found that I had to really evangelize and internalize games at Facebook. And I actually realized that esports wasn't going to be enough to really excite Facebook. I mean, they're a $500 billion market cap company. They're doing so many cool things in different industries across the world. It had to be bigger than just esports because esports is about a billion dollar industry. And that's when I was able to take over our gaming video strategy at Facebook, which was uh, focused on live and VOD um, in gaming. Uh, so got the opportunity to pitch to Zuck and the, and the rest of AM team about what we were building on the, the video side, and he loved it. And that really reignited the energy and passion for games at Facebook back in 2016. Um, so I'm super proud of that. There's still a lot of work to do, don't get me wrong, but there's, the, there is a, a real passion and an amazing team behind games at Facebook that just wasn't there prior to 2016. And we set out to build. So I started on the partnership side and I moved over to the product side in the latter half of my career at Facebook. But in, in building a video platform, we only had 480p video um, at 30 FPS on your, you can barely hold up your phone and get a good feed on your phone, right. which if you're trying to serve the gaming audience, that's just not going to cut it. We also had no way to monetize on a platform. So we were asking content creators to make content and not get paid for it. And that just wasn't a model they were used to when, especially when they're coming from platforms like YouTube or platforms like Twitch. Yeah. So, um, I remember speaking to a room of like 300 creators in, in Los Angeles, and I was telling them that we're building a Facebook gaming and rightfully so a lot of them weren't interested because we didn't have this, this core functionality. And, um, one guy in particular, he was a YouTuber, had some videos go viral on Facebook and he's seen the potential of the platform and his name is Stone Message 64 He's actually my co-founder today. Uh, and we essentially co-developed a lot of the programs and products at Facebook um, and really built it into a viable platform now where tens of thousands of creators are making money on Facebook. What was the pitch back then? I mean, because if, if there's no sort of monetization potential, is it just exposure? It is exposure. There is some element of you're going to bootstrap the platform so you'll seed some money to, um, you know, solve the chicken and egg problem. We needed content creators to serve that content to the audience. Um, so we we definitely bootstrapped it and had some uh, minimum guarantees that we would yeah. have for content creators to actually want to make the switch while in parallel we're building some of the core monetization uh, functionality they would expect. And that's, that's a wild ride by the way, rolling out monetization products, um, not just in one geography, but every, like, you know, every geography around the world given the mm -hmm. scope and size of Facebook is, is quite a trip. Yeah, I bet. Um, okay, so you're at Facebook. So that's kind of, you know, that's act two of your career to, to, at that point. And then, and then you moved into act three. Yeah, act three was, it was more of a question of when, not if. I always wanted to build my own company. Um, and I was getting a bit of itchy feet towards the, I was at Facebook for three years. I was getting a bit mm -hmm. itchy feet, like I want to go build something new. And myself and my co-founder David that I just mentioned, there was one thing that really frustrated us about the content creation industry that we'd observed over the last 10 years or experienced firsthand ourselves. And that's that the top 1% of the industry, which me and him were both a part of, get a ton of support and a ton of help. Um, whether that's CFPs, CPAs, agents, managers, lawyers, you know, nutritionists, psychologists, just an army of people around you when you're at the very top of the industry. And that's because there's a financial incentive to do that. You know, mm -hmm. whether they're taking a percentage of revenue or they're, um, 
charging you hundred dollars an hour. And we quite frankly made a ton of mistakes um, throughout our careers. My face is still on a mouse pad in Southeast Asia, um, eight years later being sold and I'm getting nothing for it. Uh, I just screwed up saying the wrong contract. I messed up my taxis for the first couple of years. And and so do pretty much most creators do this. Right. And there's just a bunch of mistakes that you make along the way. And for us, we wanted to create a space where we could help a lot of content creators, the existing ones, but also all the net new content creators that come in space, avoid many of the mistakes we made and then give them a better shot at being successful. And the other thing was as a content creator, it is really difficult to connect with other content creators. Um, it's an extremely broken process. And this is true in different industries, but it's even more pronounced in content creation. The only way you can meaningfully connect with another content creator is going to an event like, let's say a TwitchCon. Mm-hmm. Happens once a year. 90% of content creators can't afford to fly out of San Francisco and go to a TwitchCon. And even once you're there, you then have to try and network amongst 100,000 people to make a, like a meaningful connection on a content creator. Outside of that, you're relying on a platform like Twitter to handle your networking as a content creator. So if you're trying to connect in a meaningful way and collaborate to make content, you're doing that through Twitter, which is an extremely broken process. And we wanted to create a space where content creators could come together, but do it in a professional setting so that the expectations and the etiquette around it were very well understood. So Mm. we brainstormed about what that could look like as a platform. This is back in twenty late 2018. And we decided to um, start a company together called Pipeline, which we self-funded our launch in April 2019. And, you know, it's been kind of gangbusters ever since. You know, we've now got thousands of members that we're helping. Um, We are at the very beginning of our journey. Quite frankly, there's so much more that we want to accomplish and do. Um, But we're now in a position to help service the tail end of the industry that had largely been neglected for the last decade and platforms like Twitch and platforms like YouTube have tried to attack this problem, but they haven't done a great job of it so far for various reasons. Um, and we're going to solve that problem. I think that's a really great place to kickstart the discussion. Um, because I wanted to talk to you about the kind of middle class of, of streamers, right? Like the middle class of creators. Uh, is there a middle class? I mean, is the, is this sort of like, is the system structurally, um, structurally designed such to to sort of prohibit the creation of a, a middle class i mean or when i say the system i mean the, the the kind of the 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 sort of constellation of platforms that it's possible to stream on um just given given the kind of natural um the natural distribution of viewership right like you, you know you hear about like power laws in kind of like yep. um you know any any sort of like kind of social network type uh, product and is it just that does that kind of preclude the existence of a middle class when does it take a kind of pipeline type you know concerted effort to to be able to sort of organize people that aren't necessarily immediately motivated just by seeing all the money that they're making like it, i guess my question is can there be a middle class can there be a group of people that's not a ninja that's not the people that are household names but they still make like really great money um doing this to to just a, a more niche audience absolutely a hundred percent. You know, Ninja's making 30, 40 million a year. You don't need to make 30, 40 million a year. Um, and there definitely is, you know, historically in the streaming space, there was only a handful or one viable platform, which was Twitch um, in the West. 
And they had very much an app store discovery model in the sense that the top 10 or top 20 channels got all the viewership. So if you had a first mover advantage, you were going to benefit from that. And that really right. did benefit those early moving creators. And a lot of the viewership did skew to the top 1% um, of content creators on Twitch. Over time, that's actually gone a lot better and we're seeing the distribution of viewership move. So it's actually the top 10% that drive most of the watch hours now on Twitch, where right. previously it was the top 1%. And we're seeing that skew more down to the tail so that we can actually create a healthy middle class. The challenge is that um, a lot of the content creators, especially new content creators, are relying on the platform itself to solve that problem for them. And the reality yeah. is that unless you have that first mover advantage, you need to get a lot more creative about how you're going to drive viewership and find success on a platform like Twitch. And it is very right. much a cross-platform strategy. And you're going heavy into not just content creation, but into marketing, um, yeah. into building systems around your business, a lot of different things that... Um, historically weren't necessary because you were, it was a much less um, competitive market as a content creator. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's the important thing moving forward that all these content creators need to realize is it's not just enough to be good at video games and stream. You, you're essentially now at this point running a business and you yeah. have to treat it that way. Which is, I'm, I'm assuming most people going into this don't have that don't don't have that background like they don't have that skill set right nope they don't and it's not a bad thing at all right they're going right. into this because they're passionate about it which is you know honestly the best way the best way to start most things is to be passionate about it because then yep. you're going to stick it through when it inevitably gets tougher right. um but it just takes a much more disciplined approach um and in part of the thing that we do at pipeline is we really make sure we level set your expectations if if you're doing this purely as a hobby and you don't have the aspirations to be not a ninja, but you know, making a, a middle-class income from mm -hmm. streaming, then you need to change your expectations. Yeah. Um, like, why are you trying to cram in five hours every single night of going live? If, if you're not like actually trying to set up to be a middle-class um, creator and like turn this into a profession. A lot of creators that we see are typically working their, their regular nine to five job at the moment. Right. And they'll do streaming in the evenings. Yeah. And they're doing the entire evening. So Monday to Friday, they're just going live. That is not the approach that you should take if you're actually trying to build a career in streaming. This number of hours live is not going to help you. You actually have to think about how do I grow on other platforms that are less time consuming, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, things like that. Things that are not ever in, ever out. Yeah, I actually... Um... I'm totally blanking on his name right now. Uh, Harry Stebbings. Do you know him? He's the uh, he's the, no, the the English uh, kind of podcast host. He hosts a podcast called Twenty Minute VC. Anyway, he I mean he's blown that thing up. I mean it's I, I don't know how many listeners he has per episode now, but it's got to be you know hundreds of thousands or potentially even millions. And he talked about. Um, the other day uh, on, on just on Twitter, not in this podcast, but about how like if if there's like a you know any given episode takes an hour to record he puts 10 hours into marketing it right like it's the the actual recording of the content's the easy part right it's just you know thinking through some questions um and then recording it and then you know editing it lightly or maybe even outsourcing that and then the re the hard part is okay now i've got to get people to listen to this and go find you know go find listeners for this um and i'd imagine that like 
a lot of people probably get pulled into streaming for the wrong reasons. It's like, oh, I can make money playing video games. That's awesome, right? And the, ra- the rationale is the rationale is I'm playing games. Why don't I just stream it? Because I can yeah. make money, and and that's just it's yeah. just not how it works, right? And not not realizing that there's there's the 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 sort of like the 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 sort of the substance of the iceberg below the waterline is like marketing yourself, you know, creating a kind of brand identity, um, you know, doing all the hard editing work. Cause you actually told me something when we had dinner that I thought that was really interesting. It's something like, what was it like 80% of all of streaming views are, are async, uh, or like pre-recorded edited. So you take that five hour stream session and you just do the bet, the highlights. Right. And like 80 percent. Was it something like 80 percent or, or just the highlight distri- distribution clip? of watch hours, which is the consumption of content, about 15 yeah. percent of it is live. Right. And 85 percent of it is video on demand. Uh, yeah. Predominantly, YouTube is a winning platform there. And as a content creator, um, you really have to think about your time and how you're sure. leveraging that. And again, to um, Harry's point, um, when you record that live session, it's like, how do I then cut that up? and get that on platforms like TikTok or Twitter or Instagram. Yeah. How do I then make clips on YouTube? The one thing that's really cool about live content specifically is it monetizes at a much higher um, rate than these other platforms do. Um, so that that's one thing to keep in mind for every broadcast on live, it actually monetizes at a much higher rate. Right, because people are subbing or they're just donating. It's the direct the fan monetization. Rate. Yeah, it's the direct it. fan monetization model. Whereas everything else is, yeah. Primarily ran off ad revenue, um, or maybe some sponsorships. But the fact that um, what's unique in live is that there's this high propensity for people to donate um, and actually monetize the fan itself, right. and, and that's a really important um, tool. And, and one of the reasons that live content's been so successful is that they can um, make money directly off the fan versus relying yeah. on a platform to share. Because they want the shout out, right? That they want the shout out from the streamer. That's it. It sounds wild. It really does. Yeah. And it's it's crazy how the kind of platforms have evolved over the years. Uh, in the beginning, like when we first started live streaming, it was all about ad revenue. Yeah. And then they realized that the business model around ads for live content wasn't that great. Um, yeah. Because you have this moment in time where there's like a thousand people watching and then you can serve ads to that thousand. But even if you had, you might've had, you know, 200,000 uniques during the course yeah. of that live. But you only serve the ad at the one moment in time to that thousand people. Whereas in the VOD world, you can serve that ad at any point, everyone's gonna see that ad. Yeah. So the economics around ad revenue were a little, in the early days were a little more challenging for live content. Yeah. And then it was like, we need to find a way to incentivize content creators. And that's when this, this tipping culture came up um, yeah. where you could essentially just say, hey, I wanna give Eric five bucks because he's creating me a ton of great content and I just want to support them. And then um, startups started to recognize this happening and started to go, okay, how can I really incentivize the fact that um, this person is donating and I'll make it pop up on the stream. Mm-hmm. So I donate five bucks to Eric and it actually pops up on the, the overlay on the stream and says, hey, Steven just donated five bucks to Eric. Um, and I might be able to put a little message in there and say, hey, Eric, love the content. Yeah. And this started this behavior of tipping and it became so voracious that there's actually like, you know, minimums now and like how much you can tip to stop the spamminess of it. Yeah, yeah. But it started off a whole tipping culture and it became one of the predominant in the early days, predominant revenue sources for content creators was purely off of tips yeah. uh, from fans. What, uh, do, you mentioned something about 
um, you know, the, the kind of success as a streamer is, is being kind of divorced from just the, the expertise as a gamer, right? Is that I, cause I just something that made me think about this the other day, I was watching um, a stream on, on Facebook and I'm really big in a, in a war zone and this guy just sucked. I mean, he was like, oh, he was like barely better than me, but I mean, I was, I, I was watching and, and the whole thing is like, cause you know, you start out and he's, he's walking through his loadouts and you know, you're listening to him and he was just like an entertaining guy. He just had like a funny bone. He was really funny, but he wasn't saying, he wasn't joking. He wasn't like telling, you know, set up punchline jokes, but he was just funny. He was just like entertaining to listen to. And he's going through his loadout and you know, he's going through the warm up, and then he's going, you know, he's on the, he's on the uh, cargo plane. And so you're, you're watching him for like five, six minutes. And then he just drops in and he, he just gets killed. And I'm like, I could do that. That's not better than me. I could get killed right off the cargo plane. You know what I mean? Like I, that's, that's not any, no one's watching this guy for his skill. Cause I could, I could be streaming this exact same game. Right. And he's, you know, he's talking about his equipment and stuff. And it seemed like there was two, there's two parts of it. I just kind of want to get your thoughts on this. First, he spent a long time just talking about his equipment, like, and the evolution of his equipment over time. And it just felt like he was kind of, it was almost like there's a little bit of like a pyramid scheme element to it that I was perceiving. Cause it's like, well, this guy is just like teaching how other people had a stream. Right. And like they're probably maybe listening because, you know, they, well, they want to get tips on how to stream. And maybe that's part of how he aggregates his audience. And the other part was just he was just a showman. He was just really entertaining to listen to, but not all that great at the game. I mean, he definitely wasn't like a top player. Right. He probably doesn't compete in tournaments. He was just entertaining. How do you feel like could you could how far could you get as a streamer? Right. So you're not a pro gamer. You're just entertaining. You're just a showman. Could you make a big career out of that? Just just on those qualities alone? Absolutely. Um, you know, esports, esports and, and, and tournaments and things like that, that's about 17% on a good month, 30% of live viewership. Mm -hmm. It's actually predominantly entertainment based content. Yeah. And it's really important, um, for viewers to stick around and become very retentive, um, and yeah. to build up that, you know, solid base of a thousand fans, um, that are going to monetize. It's really important that you have an entertaining quality about you. Um, being good at the game is it helps. Don't get me wrong. It it can help mask some of the other stuff um, that you're not good at. And then as you do that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, like 10,000 hours, as you you know, stream more and more and more, you can get better at the entertainment side, but the lack of gameplay will make up for it. And some people just index on other things. Um, you know, the index higher on the funny, entertaining part. Some people are just super disciplined and they'll they'll make the content. They'll you know, market themselves and they'll do that consistently and that can help them get, get an edge. You, the reality is you do not have to be good at video games to become a video game streamer. That is absolutely not a mandate. Um, you can do so many different things that are not like playing. For example, you can play ranked gameplay, which is mm -hmm. you're competing against other people, or you can play fun game modes. Um, and, and make it about a, a much more creative. You can play games like Fall Guys or something like that, where it's just much yeah. more entertaining um, and much more easy to watch than, oh, I got to be better. I got to hit this rank in this game. And it's actually for, as a, as a content creator, it's more liberating to not have the pressure of having to be good at the game. If it's understood that you suck at the game, yeah. the pressure that takes off of you is phenomenal. Um, and I don't know about this guy in particular, but I mean, part of it is that he's willing to put in the work, right? He's willing yeah. to buy the content. He's willing to be disciplined. He's, he's willing to do this every day or every other day. And quite frankly, 95% of people will not do that. 
They won't spend the time to learn what equipment they need. They won't spend the time to buy that equipment, to set that equipment up. They won't spend the time going live every day and putting in that 10,000 hours that you have to put in. They're just not going to do it. And that's going to set him apart from everyone else. Yeah. It's, it's worth noting, by the way, that um, the equipment that I uh, am recording this podcast on uh, was recommended me, uh, to me by you. Uh, uh, so people have actually complimented the, uh, the quality of the podcast after having, you know, bought the stuff. Uh, so thank you. So, uh, you put in the time to learn the equipment, uh, <laughs> well, you did. That's and- the point is you did, right? Like, but I mean, a lot of people want to start a podcast, but a lot of people won't put in the work. Um, and yeah. it's a really hard thing. Keeping up a podcast is tough. I do it yeah. myself. So I know what it's like. It's just tough to source the gas, to, um, research the gas, to, get the equipment in order and make sure because it'll inevitably it'll, it'll break at some point. You got to fix yeah. that and then you got to cut up it in post and then you got to, it's a lot of work goes on into this and a lot of people don't realize that. And I think that's, um, that's what differentiates you from other folks in the space that, you know, might not be willing to put in that work to create the content. That, I think that's the hardest part about doing podcasting. It's that having that filter, like if you have to fill two podcasts a week, it's just inevitable you're going to get somebody on that's just like, oh, well, you know, by the way, my company can help you with blah, blah, blah. If yep. you don't, if you can be, if you can, if you have the luxury of doing, hey, I might not do any this month because I don't have a good idea for a guest, then, um, then, then by almost, almost sort of like by virtue of, of being that selective, then every single, every single episode should be higher quality. Um, one, so one thing I wanted to get to though, is I wanted to get kind of to the relationship between these top streamers and games companies, because I do feel like there may be a kind of tail wagging the dog uh, situation, which is probably a good thing with these companies building games that are kind of more naturally streamable, um, because that's only good for the gaming companies, right? If, if a game becomes like a big streaming phenomenon that probably sells more copies of the game or, you know, drives DAU for that game, how, how good, I mean, are there relationships? Do, do these game companies have relationships with top streamers? Are they kind of reaching out, trying to get, how, how, tell me about the dynamic between games companies and, and streamers. Yeah, it's really, it's evolved over the years, uh, especially since like Twitch kind of propped up. This is true on, you know, platforms like YouTube before where uh, getting a large creator to play your game could you know, really drive discovery of your game and then again, drive up DAU. On Twitch, it's became such an influential platform, especially in gaming um, for new games. Uh, an example, let's take Among Us, um, which is obviously a really high popular game right now. No one had really heard of Among Us at all. Um, it's a two-year-old game or older than that. It's like two and a half-year-old game uh, back in 2018. And no one ever heard of it. It's pretty quiet. And a bunch of streamers early on in uh, this year, around about March, February timeframe, started trying out Among Us. And that quickly spread virally amongst the Twitch community. And now obviously we know Among Us is is crushing. I don't know what the DAU is at now. It's probably even higher since it, it got on mobile, but um, it is crushing it as a game. Um, and game developers have realized the power in activating influencers, especially on Twitch, because you can create a moment, like a moment in time, Mm -hmm. like a big marketing push behind your game. And we saw this with Apex Legends. I think it was 2019 and 2018. 2018, I think Apex Legends came out, which was a big title from EA, which is a first-person shooter. They went to some of the top agencies in in the space and spent about $5 million dollars. Um, which is a fraction of the overall cost of the game. Um, and they would have spent that on traditional marketing anyway. Yeah. And they just went to some of the biggest streamers and, and they went to the agencies like loaded CAA WME 
and paid someone like Ninja, you know, a million bucks to go stream their game. And that game became the most talked about game for a bit, like a good part of 2018. Mm-hmm. And while they still have to solve the problem of retention over time, um, it is a, is a moment in time that you can create. The, the challenge that's happened is since that activation, especially in 2018 with EA, it became super competitive. So a lot of game developers are now vying over this talent. And now like the prices are getting pretty astronomical where if you want someone to play your game for an hour on stream, it could cost you $50,000 for a top Twitch yeah. streamer. And it is very hard to, you can see some of the ROI in that, but it's, it's very hard to pull it, especially as it's becoming more and more common. It's kind of watering down the value of those right. activations for game developers. Um, there's different relationships that have evolved over time. I think when you, what's better is if creators love your game and they're really uh, motivated um, in creating content around playing your game already, I would think about how I can support them as a game developer. How can I yeah. build programs or incentives or unlocks within my game for them. So a, a great example is Riot Games runs what's called the League Partner Program. Yeah. I think it has about 7,000 creators in it. And what they do is they'll give the creators like fully unlocked accounts. So they can show off all the coolest things in the game, all the mm-hmm. coolest skins. And then this creator's like, great, I don't have to spend several thousand bucks on this. I'm getting all the latest stuff right away. And then it's a win for Riot because they're now advertising all the latest skins mm-hmm. on their platform. They might even give the creators early look at future patches and they'll say, this is what's coming out in the game. Check it out. What do you think? And they might actually bring them in to influence game design um, right. as well. And I think it's really, I think the, the activation model, if, if you can try it as a beat, I wouldn't put your sole marketing strategy on let's go bake with top tier influencers. Yeah. I, I think you're better going further down the pyramid, working with smaller creators and then finding those the ones that really love your game and actually helping build and develop those. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, that bit, um, about, you know, game developers actually kind of bringing the influencers and the streamers in and asking them like, Hey, help, help us make a game that will help you, uh, to aggregate audience in streaming it. Right. Like what, what do people want to see? How, what's the, what, what, what kind of experience would be the best to stream and be the most entertaining to stream? Help us build that. I think that that's like a really interesting, um, approach because I mean I've just seen so many game companies kind of flop with the hey we built this game and now we're just going to go and we're going to like contact five streamers and ask them to um, either stream it or like m- more often it's influencers that they'll just get like influencers who are either maybe they are game streamers or maybe they're just you know famous famous people on Instagram and that I've just seen that w- not work more often than it I've seen it work I think the hard feels thing there of, is yeah, um, the hard thing there is, you know, as a game developer, and, and you'll be much more deeper than, in this than I am, and, and some of your listeners will, but is how much are you balancing making a game spectatable and watchable versus mm-hmm. how much is the game fun to play? Right. And if you overinvest on making the game spectatable, you might underinvest on making the game a great game to play. Right. And I think that balance is really important because it is a challenge. Like Riot suffered for this for the longest time. Quite frankly, it just sucked to watch League of Legends for many years. Yeah. In the early years, it was just it was a horrible game to watch. And for some people, yeah. it's still really hard to watch. But if you get into the game, it's super fun. Um, and I think it, it's just it's really important that you you draw that line between making the game itself fun and deep. Um, else you're gonna spend a bunch on marketing, you'll get a bunch of players, and then they'll fall off a month later, or even less than that. I think that's a, that's a great 
segue into a, a different topic, which is, do you think mobile game streaming is a growth opportunity? Because I think mobile games tend to not be really fun to play for like longer stretches or it's just hard to play for longer. I mean, just the design of free to play mobile games, a lot of times prevents you from playing for a long stretch, right? Unless you're spending money to do that, to, to sort of get past gates and stuff. Do you see that as a growth opportunity? I'm really bullish on mobile games and streaming. They, really? um, I think the TAM is hard to ignore. The fact that there's so many players on mobile games mm -hmm. and it's actually one of the fastest growing live streaming verticals, especially in Southeast Asia and Latin America, um, where it's more native on mobile and yeah. got games like uh, in India, like PUBG, um, mm -hmm. that are growing incredibly fast or Call of Duty um, mobile as well are growing incredibly fast. The one thing that's really interesting is when people are streaming mobile games, they'll be using their mobile phone but and playing on their mobile phone, but they'll actually be yeah. streaming from their computer. Right. So they've got a full decked up setup with, yeah. um, you know, foot paddles and stuff. They're like actually controlling their stream with foot paddles because their hands are on the mobile phone right. yeah. playing okay. the game. And then their, their feet are do, using control paddles to switch scenes yeah. and things like that on their stream uh, or interact or like play music or whatever it is. And there's some nuance around that, but for the, because the people, the, um, the content creator will get burned out, like playing a lot of mobile games, but they don't care because they're they're getting the audience. And the time is so big. There's such an interest in seeing people play Call of Duty uh, mobile or seeing people play PUBG mobile. Um, so I definitely think there's a massive appetite in that market. I think making your game stream friendly is important, but I think think about the aspect ratio and how that blows up onto like people yeah. are, are not when they're streaming and truly making content around your game. They're not going to be thinking about how do I stream from my mobile phone. Yeah. They're going to be thinking about how do I leverage my mobile phone to enhance that on a computer or on the cloud. And yeah. I think that's that was that would be the jump. I wouldn't try and focus on like how do I make this so that you could stream directly to Twitch from your phone. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is if if someone's streaming directly from Twitch on their phone, the actual broadcast is not going to be that entertaining. Mm. It's not going to be that fun. Yeah. Yeah, I um I used to be a fan of uh or I guess just a just a kind of regular player of Vainglory. I don't know if you ever played that on uh yep, played a little bit. Um kind of mobile MOBA. And I actually went to an esports tournament one time in London at the O2 Center. And I was like, how is this gonna this is not gonna be exciting? This is gonna be boring, like just watching because you are just like watching people bent over their phone. Um, but actually it was really exciting. Uh, they did a great job. And obviously there's a lot of production that goes into it that makes it more exciting, right? They've got, you know, lights and announcers and stuff. But I mean, just, you know, knowing the game really deeply and then watching people play it live in real time was exciting. But I don't think it would have been exciting to your point if I was just watching, like, you know, they had a big screen in the middle and the two teams on either side. If I was just watching that screen, if I only had kind of visual access to that real estate, I don't think that would have been that exciting, right? But just to see the kind of real life kind of setup and so, I mean, to your point, I think, yeah, if you're even, even if you're on mobile, I, I guess it does make sense. Never thought about it, but you'd probably be want, you'd want to be kind of streaming from a separate vantage point, right? Cause that's just going to make it more real and more exciting. Yeah. You want to switch, you want to alternate and mix it up. Right. I mean, it's the exact same in esports for League of Legends, right? It's the idea of someone sitting on the computer playing it is not the most engaging thing, but yeah. when you start to zoom out and create moments and up the production value, and that comes back to our earlier point, which was it's not enough just to play the game or be good at the game and stream that there there's so much more going on around the content creation, whether you're streaming or creating VOD content, there's so much more around it that's happening. 
um, it's not just playing the game. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about, uh, it seems to me that there's kind of like a battle being waged between the top kind of platforms, the top streaming platforms for um, kind of for ownership or at least kind of primacy in um, for game streaming. Can you tell me about that? How does that benefit or hurt streamers? My sense is that it benefit them because if there's competition for them, right, there's probably more perks being thrown around and better deals. Uh, can, can you walk me through that? Yeah, so before it was really... Um, two big players in the space. There was uh, On3D was a popular platform, mm -hmm. European-based platform. Another one was Twitch. And both of them suffered to, be, to build a really viable business. On3D actually went bankrupt. Um, and then right. Twitch got bought, got by, bought by um, Amazon. And yeah. Amazon helped fuel and fund their growth. And as other companies have gotten into the space, so we had Microsoft, uh, Microsoft, Microsoft um, <laughs> that, that just got... Uh, just like go mixer, um, and we had Facebook gaming get into space, and then YouTube went heavier into the live site, into live gaming. And there is far more competition now in the space in 2020 than there was even two, three years ago. Um, there's a lot more competition in the space, and that is beneficial to creators. Um, they have a lot more choice, um, even and, and viewers as well. It's beneficial to viewers because there's a lot more choice. And what that's done is created competition amidst the platforms themselves to further improve the product, to further improve discoverability, um, to further improve monetization. So it's been a win for creators all around. One of the things that's been happening amongst these platforms, especially, you know, Mixer is no longer around, but they signed a massive deal with Ninja to attract Ninja from Twitch over to Mixer and stream there. He he done really well out of that. He got a fat contract from yeah. from uh, Microsoft. Microsoft decided shift in strategic priorities, closed down the platform. He kept all the money, and then yeah. did another deal with Twitch on yeah, the back yeah. of it. So, well done, well done, the ninja on that one. Yeah. Um, but there is this bit between the top one percent of talent. There's a bidding war happening um, to attract that talent over to the different platforms, and. What that's actually done is interestingly, not, a, not necessarily a great thing for smaller content creators because you've now got these platforms focused heavily on you know defending their what they have. So you've got like Twitch saying, I, I wanna protect my top talent. You've got the Facebook saying, I wanna try and snipe off the talent from Twitch. Mm -hmm. And then you've got YouTube coming in and, and playing both sides. And there is this bidding war that's happening now. You've seen talent go from different platforms to different platforms. In the last two, three years, there's been but a couple of hundred, no, more than that, probably like a thousand deals done mm -hmm. for top talent amongst these platforms. And we're starting to see that spill down now into the top 10% um, of content creators where you've got not as big contracts being put out there, but minimum guarantees to interest people in migrating over. And no. for a content creator, it's not a straightforward decision. You get, a, you get offered a ton of money. And this was true for Joe Rogan, you know, when he was coming off iTunes to go over to Spotify it has to be a pretty fat contract for you to want to walk away from your audience on one platform and take that risk to move over to the next one. So for content creators that say are on Twitch and have a thousand subscribers that are paying every month, if they then move over to Facebook, they lose all those subscribers. So it has to yeah. offset some of that cost and then also the risk in growing your viewership on another platform. Right. Um, but the, these platform wars are continuing to go on and, and they're not going to slow down. Um, I think my hope is that it becomes less about purchasing top talent, um, you know, the head of the, the industry and becomes more about how can we innovate and differentiate the product. Mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to see that now. Product development is really accelerating 
for these platforms, which is exciting. It, it seemed to me, and I mean, you obviously have, you know, kind of an insider perspective here, but like Facebook, Facebook's kind of uh, games streaming product came out of nowhere. Actually, even before that, it, it felt like there was this kind of long spell of like, it was just Twitch. And it, and, and, and again, this is kind of like semi outsiders perspective. Um, but it felt like it was just Twitch and it's like, wow, they're really kind of struggling to make this a mainstream thing. Like it, streaming seems kind of niche, like game stream seems kind of niche, will it ever take off? And then they clearly proved it out. And then the space got very crowded very quickly. Like everyone just piled in, right? Is it, was it, or did I just miss that? It was actually a very sort of slow buildup of competition. Well, I think it's, it's less about, it's more about live streaming overall and the, and the yeah. medium of live streaming. And Facebook started getting into that in 2015, and they just saw this evolution of people wanting deeper interaction. And that was playing to Facebook's strengths, right? Live content was. I think the difference was that Twitch really proved that there's a monetization model around it that can help people build businesses on top of. And that was the the big difference for Facebook. And I mean, speaking firsthand, I was there building and pitching that strategy and back in 2016. There was a lot that went... It, 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 may have seemed like it happened overnight, but it took four years for them to get to where they are. And they're at about 15% market share right now. And it's growing um, quickly, especially in certain parts of the world. Um, but it really is um, a, a long effort. It, it wasn't necessarily just a, an overnight thing where everyone get in it. There's these platforms have been working at this for a while. Got it. The hard challenge, I think one of the biggest challenges for on the platform side is actually YouTube. They're in this weird spot where they have this large VOD behemoth that is clearly their core product. And where does live fit into that? And mm -hmm. I think they're really struggling as a, an older company to find out how, how do they make the algorithm consider live content versus VOD content? And how do they give that the product placement it needs? Because, you know, live is really that in the moment content. Like you need to be there then and there. There's no, you're not searching for live content. So it's a totally, yeah. it's a very different behavior for live content. I think YouTube is, they do have a lot of viewership. They are the second biggest live platform in the West, but they're still trying to figure out um, where does live fit in their roadmap. Yeah, my sense with live too is is exactly your point. Like you're not searching for it. You've got, it's got to be like a premeditated thing. It's like something that you've scheduled to go watch. Um, and that kind of just requires that sort of follower dynamic. Like I've got a lot of followers. I can tell them, Hey, be here at this time. Um, because I'm going to stream live or I'm going to do, and, and not just, not just about gaming either. I mean, um, you know, anything, right? Like, uh, you, you mentioned Joe Rogan. If I want to, if I wanted to watch, if I wanted to watch Joe Rogan's live, you know, stream, I would need to know when that was happening. Right. Um, I guess that was, does he still do that now? Now that he's on Spotify or does he still do the YouTube live stream? I don't know if he does the YouTube live. He does video. I don't. What I've I've been really impressed. Have you seen the video product on Spotify? No. So you like How? Joe Rogan has all of his videos now are on Spotify. So really? I didn't know that. when you boot up the podcast, um, you're getting his videos in stream in the podcast. I don't know if that's like oh. a unique thing to Joe Rogan, um, and maybe they're rolling it out wider like gradually. But I've I've enjoyed it because I never used to watch his unless it was like a you know a one off I would watch on YouTube, but. Now I can actually see the video, see the person that he's interviewing in right. natively in the app. Yeah. Okay. Which wow. That's wild. Cool. Yeah. He just interviewed, uh, kind of having on the mind today because Dave Chappelle had been in town uh, through yesterday. I guess he's leaving today. And he just did like these random impromptu shows uh, across Texas. He's, he did three in Austin. He's doing two in Houston, I think. 
but I mean, he announced them and within 30 seconds or whatever, they were sold out. Like I try, I wanted to, I wanted to buy tickets and I, you know, I saw the, I think I was like really quick to see the announcement and I clicked on and it was like site down, like refresh, refresh, refresh. I came back like 30 minutes later and it was sold out. Anyway, he, um, he was on the podcast today. Steven, uh, thank you so much today for your time. I really appreciate your insight. I really appreciate hearing your story. Um, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about you and, and connect with you? Um, on social everywhere at Snippy. Um, important distinction. It is um, Snippy with an E-H at the end. Unfortunately, the Peanuts cartoon sent me a cease and desist when I was 19 years old. So it's really? Snoopy, S-N-O-O-P-E-H across pretty much every platform. Uh, and Eric, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it was been a blast. Absolutely. And, and pipeline.gg, right? Yep. Want to find out more about Pipeline or you want to become a content creator, head to pipeline.gg. All right, Stephen, all the best to you. And uh, thank you for... Thank you for participating today. Thanks, man. Stay safe.